buckle up, everybody. This is ridiculous. I'm further incensed. This is... I will become the longest president of all time. They're going to make a law so no one can do what I'm about to do. Yeah. Welcome to the premiere episode of Season 3 of the Presequential Podcast, where we go from 1 to 45 and under 90 and discuss the life, legacy, and little-known facts about every American president. We're so happy you're with us. This season is going to be great. guys. We, we made feeling? it. We did. We made it to the last season. Blaine, give the people, in case they're what just they now want. joining on FDR, how this started and how far we've come. Just really quick. So we went to Just Judy's once, and I said I was going to read a book on every president, and Ryan was like, we should do a podcast. And then we did... A podcast and we made every season 15 episodes long yeah. and we read a book on every president ever but we're in the home stretch yeah. we've read multiple thousands of pages yeah. of president books we know so many random things we would be so good at jeopardy just that category though yeah just the one it, it, President and president adjacent yeah, categories. Yeah. We've got a guy that read one book on vice presidents. He's here every week. It's been a journey. It has been. Uh, and, and we're now getting into the heavy hitters. So yeah. we've done all the boring ones. Yes. All the boring ones are yeah, gone. Yeah. There are no more boring presidents. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> depending on how you look at boring yeah. and presidents. Right. Because theoretically, they all are. But <laughs> at some point, the one is just kind of so all of season our eyes three, kind of over. We got FDR. Yeah. We got Nixon. We got Kennedy. Yeah. We got uh, Benjamin Franklin wasn't a president. No. Nor uh, was Alexander Hamilton, like my sister still thinks he was a president. Yeah, she's yeah. wrong. That is the um, voice of Blaine Zimmerman, who came up with the idea to read this many books. Sure did. Based on a list that we found of a guy who actually read like every biography on every president and then ranked the books. and then No, read. no. The idea came from I saw Hamilton once, and I thought, I want to read a book of every president. The idea for a podcast came from my acapella friend next to me. That's me. Who was like... I never hear my voice enough. We should record it some more. <laughs> Touche. I'm Ryan Allward, by the way, if you're just now joining us. And the anonymous friend that Blaine had mentioned actually does have a name. He's got a beautiful beard as well. That's our vice presidential expert and producer extraordinaire, Russell Slip. His hair grows upside down. Yes. That's does. true. Yeah. Nothing on top. It's an anomaly. Big beard. Yeah. We also have a friend in the house. You want to introduce uh, your good pal here, a friend of the show as well. Season two was sponsored by Greek's Pizzeria. And today joining us uh, is my good friend, Brett Tipton, owner of two Greek's Pizzerias. Hey, Brett. The sponsor of season two. Brett, thank you for joining us. Yeah. And the microphones that we're talking into were purchased. Purchased by Brett. Brett. So thank Thank you you very much much for that. Brett, please say hello. You're welcome. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. That was and that's it. it. That's Great. all we get from Brett this episode. <laughs> hey, if you're having a good time listening to the podcast and you want to support us and get episodes early and ad-free, maybe you want some bonus episodes, feel free to join our Patreon community. You can join for as little as five bucks a month at patreon.com slash presequential. For five bucks more, you'll get those bonus episodes sent to you as we create them. All right, Blaine, we read a book. Please tell people about the book. Also, what we're drinking tonight in honor of FDR. So, tonight's book was titled FDR by Gene Edward Smith. Maybe Jean, 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 Jean Edward Smith. Uh-huh. It was written in 2007. It's 636 pages. Our total running count moving into season three yeah. is... We're starting at 13,807 pages read. 32 presidents. That's a lot of pages there. Please. That's a lot of pages. Yeah. This episode is called The Raconteur. Ooh. Oh, this is the one. Raconteur Ooh, like is that. a person that tells stories yeah. uh, very well. He known for the fireside chats. Yes. 
So I went with the raconteur. I really like that. Uh, and he also, as we'll see, was able to shift specific stories throughout his career that benefited him pretty well. Yeah. Um, this isn't going to be all snowflakes and sunrises on FDR. Yeah. We all, you know, we want to sure. give him all the credit in the world, but... It's also you know. discuss what we learned. So what oh, are yes. we drinking tonight? So FDR's favorite drink was a gin martini. And while two-thirds of the podcast really love gin martinis, we found uh, two weeks ago that one of us literally can't stomach them. I did not like them at all. <laughs> it tasted so, like pure gasoline. And for those of you that didn't hear the Hoover episode, the season finale of season two, none of us had had a true gin martini before. Uh-uh, no. Nope. And my wonderful, beautiful wife had made us some gin martinis. Russ and I fell in love immediately. Like, I yeah, even texted, delicious. like, afterwards, like, I think I might be a martini guy now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan was revolted. Oh, God. Like, Every sip. Yeah. It, it was, was amazing was to watch. Yeah. Like, at first we thought, well, it's just the olives. And then in the no. break, he ate the entire jar of olives. Yeah. So uh, it was definitely not the olives. It was not. The, the olives were delicious. So we tried a different concoction. I think it might have been the vermouth. Just, I think yeah. you just don't like earthiness. Anyway, anyway I yeah. thought, what do you do if the book is called FDR and you live in central Indiana? Like, what is the connection to FDR? Four Day Ray, mm-hmm. the brewery yeah. right down the road from my house. Yeah. Conveniently. And FDR minutes, brewery. Five, five yeah. minutes from all of us. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what we're drinking tonight. The brewery is Four Day Ray. And we have three different kinds. Ryan went and picked up Growlers. What I'm drinking is a beer that I thought that was most fitting mm-hmm. for the episode. It's called Warring Factions. Uh, and I don't know if you know anything about FDR, but war is going to become yeah, very like part of the storyline. Yeah. You are drinking... I'm drinking the Road Warrior. It's, a, it's like a hazy IPA. Okay. And then, Russ, are you drinking a separate one? Brett, what are the, you drinking? I'm drinking Bob. Okay, the Blood Bob. Orange Blonde. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Great food, really good beers. Yeah, we did have some house. Greeks pizzas tonight. Yes, thank you, yes. Brett, for that. For it was the last hurrah. It would be the last time we ever yeah. eat it. The- <laughs> well, cheers. Cheers to you all. Let's get into this go. what could be marathon episode <laughs> of FDR, go. the man who was president five times. That's right. So what do you guys remember about FDR from, let's say, high school government civics? Brett first. Terrible student. No clue. I'm going to get wheelchair in there. Okay. Yep. Wheelchair okay. for sure. And New Deal. New Deal. Okay. All right. World War II. Yes. Boy Scouts. Huh. Huh. I had polio, which is related to the wheelchair that Russ mentioned. Nothing to fear but fear itself. Mm. Day that will forever live in infamy. Mm. Uh, I had a picture of him seated with uh, Churchill and Stalin in my mind. Let's talk about his early life, shall we? Let's oh, dive into boy. FDR. Wow. All right. So Franklin- I'm going to interrupt you so many times. <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah. If you're a first time listener, uh, Blaine hops in just uh, willy nilly and it's a lot of fun. Whenever I want. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was born in 1882 in Hyde Park, New York to James and Sarah Roosevelt. His dad was a wealthy landowner and businessman and his mother Sarah was an independent aristocrat who was 26 years younger than her husband. Franklin was the couple's only child and he was doted on by his mother and a host of caretakers. All right, I'm going to stop you there. Yeah. A few things. Mm -hmm. He didn't have a name for the first three months. He was originally supposed to be Isaac because of family tradition and then Warren, which he would have been our second Warren president. Uh And then finally it was Franklin. Three months later, he and Teddy Roosevelt's common ancestor was Claus von Rosenfels, who landed in the United States in 1650. Yeah. So yes, they are related. I think that was their both mutual shared fourth great grandparent. Correct. I think. His mother, Sarah, 
was advised against having any other children, which he is had a why very he's, rough childbearing experience with Franklin. What'd you say his dad's name was? James. So, based on that advisement, Sarah and James decided, well, if we shouldn't have children anymore, the only logical next step is never have sex again. And they didn't. Very frigid relationship. <laughs> wow. You should just close up shop. Yep. Completely. And that's enough of that. Yeah, all right. That'll stop now. According um, to who? Sarah. What do you mean? Who said they never had sex again? The book. Gene. Okay. All right. Edward Smith Jean said or that. Okay. Uh, he specifically said they were told don't have more kids, and they were like, yeah. I guess we just well, don't just, do that uh, anymore. Just a, All right. You know. uh, they visited the Cleveland White House a lot. At the Grover one point, Cleveland White House, not the White House that was in Cleveland, <laughs> in Cleveland yeah. Ohio. Not. At one point, Grover Cleveland told FDR, the only piece of advice I have to give you is never become the president. He's like, And boy, did he go the opposite direction. <laughs> he became the most president president ever. I will out-president you. <laughs> yeah, I, will, I will become the longest president of all time. They're going to make a law so no one can do what I'm about to do. <laughs> yeah, that's how much he uh, admired Grover Cleveland's advice. Yeah. He was like, oh, never become the president? Oh. I'm going to out-president everybody yeah. ever. Yeah, how 76 years of being president sounding. <laughs> they lived upriver from New York. His first trip abroad with his family was at age two. He would travel every year from the ages of seven to 15. Except for attending public school in Germany at age nine, he was homeschooled by tutors until his parents sent him off to a prestigious boarding school in Massachusetts called Groton mm-hmm. uh, when he was 14. And around that time... Boarding he- school purposefully had no hot showers. It purposefully only had cold showers because they wanted to be strict with the children at all times. That'll wake you up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Very yeah. austere. Go ahead, Russ. You have questions. It sounds like a Kellogg thing. Uh, oh. Like Northwestern NBA? No, no. Kellogg. The, uh, like the... Oh. Uh, was that oh. shredded wheat? Or what oh. did he make? The cornflakes. Yeah, where he had the like whole, the sanitarians. Like, if you're not aware... Yeah. Cereal was invented to prevent masturbation. Yeah. Brett just looked up from his phone, <laughs> bewildered. Yeah. From Groton, he went on to Harvard, where he spent more time as editor of the Harvard Crimson newspaper than he did on his studies. This he was his proudest thing. Yeah, he was a pretty his, average student. Sarah moved to Boston when he went to Harvard. I believe she is the quintessential helicopter mother. Mm-hmm. My son's going to Harvard. Yeah. I'm moving there. And also, she never really thought any woman was going to be good enough for her one and only little boy, Frank. 100%. Yeah. She was a helicopter parent. Yeah. I and mean, she yeah. was a parent of an only child. And she completely planned his life. We have to remember, and I'm definitely going to bring this up again. They are ridiculously wealthy. Yeah. Rules don't apply to them. It's, they definitely are the type of people that don't know how much a gallon of milk costs. It's the 1880s. I mean, the Gilded Age, full swing. Things are things are rosy for the Roosevelts. Oh, he began to declare himself a Democrat at Harvard, though his, like you mentioned, Blaine, his distant fifth cousin was a rising star in the Republican Party, Theodore, of course. And at the same time, he began courting his other fifth cousin, Eleanor, same last name, Roosevelt. <laughs> whose mother lovingly referred to her as an ugly duckling and she called her granny in front of her friends when when Eleanor was a young girl, which must have been brutal. <laughs> to like, If you think about it, FDR has a mom who he is her world. Mm-hmm. And then Eleanor has a mom who is calling her granny at the age of five or six in front of her friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they had two totally different upbringings. Well, and that's going to come into play. Yes, it will. Yeah. So the two were married in New York City on St. Patrick's Day in 1905, a few months after FDR began law school at Columbia. Their first kiss at the wedding 
was their first kiss. That doesn't shock me. That doesn't shock me. Gene? Yeah. Gene Smith? Uh-huh. I, I feel like, so far, the FDR wedding, they'd never kissed before, and then the parents never had sex again. I don't think any of this is... I don't think any of that's true. Oh, well, <laughs> let's be careful about bad-mouthing Gene, because he's going to come up a few more times okay. this season. We don't season. even know if this is a male or a female Gene. We that's don't even true. know. Jean. Jean. She, Jean. Uh, they are going to come up a few more times this season. They write more than just this book. Yeah, okay. in oh, season yes, three. Well, Eleanor's uncle just happened to be the president at the time, Teddy Roosevelt, and mm. he walked her down the aisle. I mean, everybody was very, very focused on the president being there. But before that, Sarah pulled Eleanor aside when they were engaged and said, please stay apart for a year during your engagement so that FDR can establish himself in business. Hmm. Stay like, apart, not rich- like conjugally, but like geographically. Correct. Yeah. Like rich people operate on a different, like not rich, sorry, wealthy. Yeah. There's a difference. Wealthy people operate on a different plane. The fact that she was going to her future daughter-in-law yeah. and was like, please stay away from your future husband for a year. He needs to do some things on the business yeah. side. Yeah. Like that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I found this quote to be interesting. Although Eleanor considered sex to be, quote, an ordeal to be endured, she and Franklin had six children over the next 11 years, one of whom unfortunately died in infancy. She was also a really terrible mother. And let me read from page 57. <laughs> I love that you've got your little bookmark. <laughs> There's post-it note number one. Yeah. So unlike Sarah, who handled... This is straight from Jean John's mouth. Fingers. Unlike Sarah, who handled every detail of FDR's childhood, Eleanor delegated the raising of her children to a succession of nurses and caregivers. I had never any interest in dolls or little children, she wrote, and I knew absolutely nothing about handling or feeding a baby. Having heard that fresh air was good for babies, Eleanor ordered a small chicken wire cage, constructed (laughs) and placing Anna in it, hung the contraption out a rear window at the townhouse in New York. It was on the north side of the building, cold and shady, and the baby often cried, but Eleanor paid no attention. Finally, an irate neighbor threatened to report the Roosevelts to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. That was rather a shock to me, Eleanor recalled, for I thought I was being a very modern mother. Yeah, they would have these chicken wire cages that would kind of look like a like an air conditioning unit would look like yeah, now on the outside. Yeah, but it was just a baby. Yeah, just a baby inside like 40 feet above the ground <laughs> in a chicken wire and when like, they, on a ledge. when they threatened to call CPS she was like, I thought it was being modern. What the like heck? they were like, your baby's crying. She's like, that's what the maids are for. Yeah. Why are you yelling at me? They're the ones not coming fast yeah. enough. Okay, they were hanging them in chicken wire cages out the window? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it was like a ledge. You've never seen these pictures? No. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. Okay. Like, think of a balcony, but for babies, and in a cage. Yeah. (laughs) It's a baby cage balcony. (laughs) Now that you describe it, it makes sense. Yeah, totally. Uh, He's not wrong. It does look like an air conditioning unit, but instead of it being an air conditioning unit... It's a cage with a baby in There's it. There's a helpless child there in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Russ just saw it's a picture of it. It's, it's, it's very frightening. It's, that's also I mean, a very that's, healthy looking that's, baby. Yeah. I mean, in the parent's that, defense, that yeah. child looks healthy and sturdy. In the caregiver's defense. <laughs> the caregiver's, right. <laughs> Franklin had very little this is, interest. This is the guy that created Social Security. He was so... Adamant. <laughs> About the protection of the downtrodden that he allowed his own wife to have their child hanging out. But other people had those too? Yeah. Just them. That was a thing, man. 
Anyway, Franklin had very little interest in the law, and he ran successfully for New York State Senate in 1910. <laughs> yeah, and was, he was re-elected. at Columbia, right? Yeah. He basically dropped out of law school, which was kind of normal back then to be like, well, I'm not going to finish. Well, he already passed the bar. He passed Correct. the bar while he was in school, so he was like, why would I need yep. to say Might as well run for the state senate. He was reelected in 1912. In 1913, he joined the Wilson administration as assistant secretary of the Navy, which was Do you remember one of the, why? I don't remember the exact reasoning. At the DNC in Baltimore, he created like the Young Democrats for Wilson. Do you remember that in the Wilson episode? Oh, yeah. yeah. And like he brought a bunch of people down like he was like our age, maybe younger than us. Okay. With like pins and and stuff and passed them out. And he got Wilson elected. So he became the Teddy of his time as assistant secretary of the Navy. Yeah. Yeah. Teddy, of course, being in the first McKinley administration. Also, at the same time, this is a little interesting to see the parallel lives that are happening. Winston Churchill at the same time that FDR is becoming the assistant secretary of the Navy. Churchill is going up the bureaucratic chain in the UK. And uh, bagpipes. before they met, they were running similar paths on the way up. In 1918, Eleanor discovered that Franklin was having an affair with her social secretary, Lucy Mercer, and she offered FDR a divorce, which he refused, knowing that it would probably look bad for a rising political star to have a broken marriage. Yeah, a couple of pieces about that. So Alice Roosevelt was the one that allowed that to happen. And that is she, TR's daughter. daughter. She would let them meet at her house, some sort of relative of his was allowing him to cheat on some sort of relative on his own relatives on her own relatives property whose side are you on alice when when eleanor found out it it did almost cause a divorce but it also caused eleanor to just kind of catapult into her own person yeah and we'll kind of talk about that like as we get through the episode from now until FDR dies. They're two different people yeah. going two different paths that live in the same building. Yeah, it's a political partnership. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. very much wow. like House of Cards. If you ever watch House of Cards, like they yeah. very much live like different lives. They understand how they help each other. The Underwoods. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But they Thank have you. that dope rowing machine. I want one of those oh, yeah. rowing machines. Yeah. He was tapped in 1920 to be the Democrats vice presidential candidate, although the ticket of James Cox and FDR lost handily <laughs> to Harding and Coolidge. <laughs> FDR's future seemed bright. Tragedy struck, however, in August 1921 when 39-year-old Franklin contracted poliomyelitis, a viral okay. inflammation of the spinal column that left him paralyzed in his legs. So during World War One, when he was assistant secretary of the Navy, he foresaw World War one is like a major problem for the united states before wilson or daniels the secretary of the navy ever like stepped in so theodore urged fdr to resign to join as a naval officer because like if you remember theodore was like trying to get in he ended up negotiating between joseph kennedy and the argentine Navy. So JFK's dad worked for Bethlehem Steel at the time. They had agreed to make two ships for the Argentinian Navy. Mm-hmm. And at the time, a famous person that you've maybe heard of, Charles Schwab, okay, sure. was the head of Bethlehem Steel. Hmm. So the Argentine Navy had two ships and they couldn't pay for the ships. And so Charles Schwab was like, we're not giving them the ships. So FDR was like, no, this is a bigger deal than the amount of money right now. We need to give them these ships. And Joseph Kennedy went and negotiated. So Charles Schwab was too big of a deal to go talk to FDR, the assistant secretary of the Navy. He sent his underling, Joseph Kennedy, to Hmm. go talk to him. 
Franklin received him. He was like, don't worry about it. The State Department's going to collect it. And Kennedy was like, that's not enough. We're not going to release the ships. FDR was like, that's absurd, quote unquote. They went back and forth. And then Kennedy leaves and Charles Schwab's like, yeah, we don't have to do anything. So FDR goes and gets Navy tugboats. They show up a week later into the yard with gun whales and like Marines at the guns and tug the two Argentinian ships out into the ocean and hand them off to Argentina. And Kennedy just stood there like nothing he could do because there's freaking Marines with guns. He said, Roosevelt was the hardest trader I'd ever run up against. Hmm. I was so disappointed I broke down and cried. So he got JFK's dad Dad. to cry. But at the same time, like if you're Charles Schwab or Joseph Kennedy, you really want to go up against... The might of the government in the midst of a world war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe go, eh, I could probably make some more money somewhere else. Yeah. In the 1920s, due to his polio, he invested a considerable part of his fortune in a, uh, a spa in Warm Springs, Georgia, whose waters aided in his rehab process. In later years, the cottage that he built in the town of Warm Springs would be called the Little White House. And he also later established a polio treatment center there to help other polio patients. Do you know where he got polio from? Russ, do you know where he got polio from? No. I thought feel he was like you should, one Russ. day and then he came Should I? Home. feel like you should. God, if it's Israel, I'm going to be really pissed. <laughs> no, it's the other. It's your secondary like thing that's near and dear to your heart. He was doing like a handshake meet and greet photo op with the Boy Scouts. Oh, all right. And contracted polio on that day from some of the Boy Scouts. Really? Yeah. I bet the Boy Scouts really bury that in their history with some other stuff that they're probably not happy with. I don't know. There might be a merit badge for it. <laughs> well, the 1920s at You large, know, he claims that he uh, wrote the Haitian Constitution. I did not remember When that he was on the campaign trail in 1920, when he was the VP for Cox in 1920, he claimed he wrote the Haitian Constitution. On the which ticket is, that lost to Harding. Yes, yeah. correct. Yeah. It's about as factual as Al Gore saying he invented the internet. <laughs> Wait, he did like, <laughs> Why the like, Haitian yeah, Constitution? Yeah, like, of all the constitutions, well, yeah. whatever. Okay. You read the same book I, I know, did? I know, but it was also like six months ago when I read this. <laughs> The 1920s at large were a crucible for FDR that gave him a new perspective on the plight of like the sharecropper, the rural blue-collar worker in America, which would later inform his future New Deal policies. All right, so in 1928, he's asked to run for governor of New York, and he really has to decide whether his body can physically handle that stress. Ultimately, he decided he could do it, and he won the election in 28 and then won again in 1930. While he was governor of New York, 5,000 American banks collapsed. One in four farms went into foreclosure, and an average of 100,000 jobs vanished each week. By 1932, over 12 million Americans, nearly a quarter of the entire workforce, were out of work. For tens of millions of Americans, this was a time of panic poverty, and hopelessness. As the Great Depression worsened, President Hoover and the Republicans' prospects for the 1932 election withered. The Democrats, on the other hand, looked to the rising star of their party, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Eleanor, at this time, was actually a really huge political asset to FDR. She visited with the Bonus Army marchers. If you don't know what the Bonus Army is, go to episode 31. I do want to point out, though, like he did go full college football coach when he immediately agreed upon agreeing privately to go after the Democratic 
bid for president, mm-hmm. he immediately called the press and was like, in no way, shape, or form am I running <laughs> no, for president. No, 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 not like, me. Which is like the typical college football thing where it's like, I am not going to be the coach at Louisville next yeah. year. Yeah. And then, like, three days later, it's like, Coach is going to be at Louisville next year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Bonus Army were Great War veterans, uh, otherwise known as World War I, who were waiting on these back pensions. They marched on Washington. Hoover, by executive order, basically sent in the army to break up this march. Turns out they ended up getting attacked, and they basically went back over the river. And Eleanor visited with these Bonus Army marchers, many of whom were in their tattered tents with their families. She ate beans alongside them with her hands out of, you know, cans of beans. One of these veterans summed things up perfectly when he said, mm. Hoover sent the army, Roosevelt sent his wife. I thought that was an interesting quote. They didn't have spoons. Yeah. Couldn't afford them. I don't know. Couldn't afford them. <laughs> well done. In a landslide election, FDR won the presidency and was inaugurated on March 4th, 1933 for the first of what would become four times as chief executive. Yeah, and that was probably one of his most famous speeches Mm -hmm. probably right up there with lincoln's inauguration speech or the emancipation proclamation so this is a day of national consecration he said this great nation has endured will revive and will prosper so first of all let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself nameless unreasoning unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. That's good oratory. I mean, we're going to get into his use of oratory even more in the fireside chats, but FDR is already priming himself to be a huge force, to say the least, in using communication as a tool. I mean, if you want to think about efficiency, too, his inaugural speech was less than 15 minutes long. That's one five. Very few people don't remember the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Yeah. Even if you know nothing about politics, history, people in America know the phrase, the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. Mm -hmm. He did it in a less than 15 minute inauguration in his first time. Yeah. So the first three months of his presidency were a whirlwind of legislation to bring the country out of the worst oppression it to this point has ever seen. The New Deal that FDR offered to the American people began immediately after he took office. Within his first week, he declared a banking holiday to basically reestablish confidence in the banking system. Well, do you remember why? 389 banks closed between when he was elected to when he was inaugurated. Okay, so we're talking from the difference from November to March. Mm-hmm. 400 banks close? Yeah. It's not like there's a bank on every quarter like we have now. Right. He also established what was called the Tennessee Valley Authority to modernize agriculture and bring electricity to this impoverished region of Tennessee. He also quickly created the so-called alphabet agencies, such as the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and FIRA, which was the Federal Emergency Relief Administration to basically help offer relief. So these were just two of the many alphabet agencies, acronyms that he created. And now we only think about alphabet agencies as cia fbi right like, fema well or google right what are you talking google. about oh alphabet the company that owns the, yeah that owns google is google called and alphabet. all their subsidiaries oh i see. alphabet okay we're on different pages here there it but is. yes yeah. thank you russ the amount of art that came out of ccc is pretty crazy art yeah i thought the ccc was working on like public lands it and did projects but it also commissioned multiple artists okay, to be able to work on their art on subsidies a lot of the art that we know as famous mm. paintings sculptures murals yeah. and things like that today are direct descent some of it even music cc art get it oh music. god mm. ccr 
<laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> but there are like multiple famous paintings and sculptures now that were directly because of the CCC. Yeah. He's trying to pull us out of the deepest depth that not just the country, and, I mean, but like well, I around mean, the it, world. It, this is a global depression. But it also shows you like the people that, that every once in a while will be like, well, why are we funding the arts? Why are we doing this? Yeah. From And it's like, well, if you look back to the times we funded the arts, sometimes we get the best art. Yeah. During the season, he addressed the nation, the radio, in his fireside chats, which you probably have heard of, uh, basically to calm citizens' fears and worries when they needed it most. Thank you, Blaine, cracking your knuckles (laughs) repeatedly. I can't. Now that I've started, I can't stop. (laughs) This was an extremely effective strategy using oratory. Smoke two packs of camels a day. Yeah, he loves cigarettes, man. That's insane. Yeah, he really did. Two packs of cigarettes a day. Which like, was that the time when like doctors would be like, "Go ahead, it's actually oh yeah, good this for is you. the healthy cigarette." Yeah. <laughs> did he have an ashtray in his wheelchair? But oh, he might have. I don't know. He How do you even did. have time to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day? That's forty cigarettes, and in not, a, he couldn't do it while he was operating his wheelchair. It's two an he hour, could. if you think about it, give or take. That's a lot. Okay, one every thirty minutes. It's you can do two that. an hour. It's oh, two but an hour. That, that assumes you, you're awake all day. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you take sleep yeah. out of that. So yeah. he's just breathing smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Constantly. constantly, every day. Like, and we wonder how he died only after four terms as yeah, president. Right. Right. And the like he could have had six terms. Yeah. Maybe he had <laughs> someone lighting him for him. I don't know, Russ. I mean, that's a good I'm question. Imagine like an arm that holds a cigarette right in front of his he mouth. He wasn't quadriplegic russ i know he's using his wheelchair but i'm saying you're saying he's a man of efficiency i'm saying you need two hands to operate a wheelchair right you don't otherwise you're going in circles sure (laughs) so you have this other mechanical arm holding the cigarette i see what you're saying like (laughs) no why would he need to go be moving at all times like why couldn't he like west wing (laughs) he's just seated Otherwise, you'd be going in circles. You're not wrong about that. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> I just think, though, if if you'll allow, like a little offshoot of just other famous presidents using communication skills with an audience. I mean, especially around okay. this time, the nation needed to know that everything was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And FDR really rose to that occasion to, using a, a, not necessarily a brand new form of technology, but a relatively new one. Fireside chats. This is where yeah. I got raconteur because he would yeah. sit around and tell stories mm-hmm. very effectively. And sometimes the stories weren't true, but they didn't need to be in the parlance of that time. They needed to calm the country. Are you saying he would like use allegory? I'm saying that he would sometimes lie. Okay. He would sometimes like embellish. And you know what? Sometimes in that, time that's what we needed and that's okay another raconteur gene shepherd from indiana who wrote the christmas story jack white gene shepherd jean shepherd <laughs> the second new deal from 1935 to this new deal's not new enough it's the second one <laughs> it included the social security act the works progress administration mm. that put more americans to work on building roads and public buildings and the national youth administration that provided work for young americans from 16 to 25 years of age so okay. he was really trying to put multi generations to work during this time so the social security act in theory works really well 
right? That was me folding paper <laughs> right in front of the microphone because I put post-it notes in the parts of the book that are important. He said taxes were never a matter of economics. They're all politics all the way through. We put payroll contributions in there to give the contributors a legal, moral, and political right to collect their pensions and unemployment benefits. With those taxes in there, no damn politician can ever scrap my social security program. He wasn't technically wrong. No politician is going to scrap the social security program, but the immense amount of people that were born because of your social security Mm. program Mm. are going to scrap it because there are way too many people that were that were going to benefit of it at the same time that you could have ever imagined. Mm -hmm. Like, granted, he never saw the end of World War II, so he would have never seen the concept of the baby boom. But his Social Security program is going to go away relatively soon because there's no way they could have put enough, even with his pensions and unemployment benefits from the payroll contribution. Like, good on him to realize, like, hey, let's just take it out of everybody's paycheck sure. right away i don't think they ever would have considered the population boom they were gonna yep. have so didn't have a crystal ball at the time to look down who does you know mm, yeah right i mean i do and buckle up everybody <laughs> well buckle up right now because things were going down in europe at this time from 1935 to 1940 let's really quickly analyze what's going on in europe as a precursor to uh, the second world war so Congress passes five different neutrality acts that forbade American involvement in foreign conflicts. So at this time, 1935, Italy is invading Ethiopia. There's a civil war in Spain in 1936. That's where Franco and the fascist forces come into play there. The Japanese attack on China in 1937. Japan had been occupying a territory called Manchuria. Basically, Japan invaded uh, China. And then, of course, you've got Hitler, who is rising to power in 33, and then doing an, an entire conquest of the majority of Europe, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Denmark, Holland, Belgium, Norway. I did not know that Hitler was in Norway and France. It's gorgeous this time of year. Norway, Why actually, is, Norway is beautiful. <laughs> Have you ever been to Norway? I wish. I Have want to. Have any of you guys been to Norway? Man, it no. is awesome. It's just absolutely breathtaking. Did you go there on a cruise ship? I did. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. <laughs> so all this international conflict is going on. FDR gets reelected. In all while he's trying to pack the court. Go ahead. Open that up. It's actually something that's important to bring up in the context of our current time. Which we really? should say is we're recording this on January 30th of 22. So that's our Well, but even like time. last year and the year before, like the pack the court thing came up yeah, a sure. little bit in sure. current news. So. This actually originated with FDR, so his concept was anybody over the age of 70 would be able to put another person on the court Mm -hmm. to like replace them to phase them out over time. Charles Evan Hughes, which is somebody that even if you don't know a ton about history or the Supreme Court, you probably have heard the name Charles Evans Hughes. He was the deciding vote, five to four, that led to FDR not being able to pack the Supreme Court. And basically, FDR's like biggest issue in this was he started attacking judges individually. Mm. So instead of looking at attacking the problem as a whole, or you know, however you see it, he was like, these specific judges aren't good enough to be on the Supreme Court. Well, of course, at that point, they're going to vote against you, right? Sure. Fun fact, the fact that Charles Evans Hughes, who was a Democrat, voted against it and it ended at 5-4, killing, packing the Supreme Court, lent to the phrase, a switch in time saved nine. 
So that phrase is specifically huh. because of the Charles Evans Hughes vote. Did Wait. you say a switch in a time? A switch in time saved nine. I always thought it was a stitch in time saves nine. Yeah. And when would you use that? Like what? What is that idiom used or that cliche? What, what's that? What's that used to describe? It sounds like being prepared for something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I have bad handwriting, but this <laughs> is definitely switch, not stitch. Okay. Okay. He's inaugurated for the second time, March 4th, 1937. This was the first inauguration ceremony on the January 20th date that we now know. There it is. Thanks to the 20th Amendment that was passed a couple years prior in 1933. On that note, we're going to take a break, refill our delicious FDR beverages from Four Day Ray in central Indiana. You are listening to episode 32, the raconteur of the Presequential Podcast. Here's a word from one of our awesome sponsors. We'll be right back. Facing the transition out of the military is rarely easy. It doesn't help that the staggering number of options you're faced with can be overwhelming. But there's a light at the end of that tunnel for all veterans. And that light shines brightest here in Indiana. Lucrative careers in fast-growing industries are plentiful. Housing costs are amongst the lowest in the nation. And you can live in the country while being less than an hour from a world-class city. At InVets, we're showing veterans how to translate the valuable skills they've learned to the civilian world while connecting them with careers they can be proud of so they can lead fulfilling, purposeful lives. Go to InVets, that's I-N-V-E-T-S dot org. Create a profile to learn more about Indiana communities, browse the current open job openings in these communities, and receive your free shirt. That's InVets, I-N-V-E-T-S dot org. Welcome back. So the ongoing war in Europe has taken a vital turn in 1937. After failing to defeat the British through the air in the Battle of Britain, Hitler launches a massive invasion of his former ally, the Soviet Union. He also tries to conquer the British by choking out the island nation from the sea, ordering Nazi subs to attack British shipping vessels in the North Atlantic. FDR extended aid to the Soviets and ordered the American Navy to fire on German subs at sight in the North Atlantic. By the fall of 1941, Germany and the United States were at war in all but name. Yeah. And that was right about the time Charles Lindbergh, everyone's favorite pilot. Hey, we know his name. He stepped in. He was like, no, no, no. We shouldn't have a fight against Europe because our bond with Europe is a bond of race. It's not... That's a direct quote? Yeah, that's a direct quote. Our bond with Europe is a bond of race and not political ideology. Racial strength is vital, politics a luxury. If the white race is ever seriously threatened, it may then be time for us to take our part for its protection, to fight side by side with the English, French, and Germans, but not with one against the other for our mutual destruction. Also, hey Chuck, your kid should have been kidnapped. Like... Good night. Should I reread? Like, no. you guys all what were shocked that I thought his child should be taken away from him. So, what page was that in the genre? 440. There it is. Like, so he wanted to start a race war. No, he was on Hitler's side, is what he was saying. He didn't want to get involved because they're also white. Why would we fight him? So I stand by my statement that his child should not been in his protection. It should have been removed. Oh, was his child kidnapped? Yeah. <laughs> 
It sure was, and probably in a very open and loving family. Was it taken from its cage uh, 40 feet above the ground? Like, I just, I really want everyone to walk away from this understanding how big of a piece of garbage Charles Lindbergh was, especially you, Russ. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I never knew that about Charles Lindbergh. Thank you for enlightening Well, now you do. Now you do. The immense challenges that FDR faced in Europe were compounded by the fact that things were getting worse in Asia, relationship between U.S. and Japan was sinking even further, even faster. His strategy was to contain and isolate Japan economically and politically. He basically saw Germany as a more pressing problem. By isolating Japan, the U.S. and the Allies stoked Japan's fears of being denied access to the resources that it said it needed to prosecute further its war into China. So by the summer of 41, Japan's leaders felt increasingly hemmed in by America, Britain, China, and the Dutch and adoptive overtly aggressive military policies. Japan is getting heated at this point. Summer of 41, all right? We knew for a fact that Japan was going to attack. That is very clear. Looking back historically, the thing we didn't know was where and the very last place that we ever suspected was Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Yeah, so they invade southern Indochina, summer of 41. They're just trying to press further into China. Roosevelt responds by freezing their assets in the U.S. Japanese leaders are hot. They're convinced that the U.S. imperiled their national interest and... (laughs) We're preparing for war. Imagine being in a war, being like, wait, the people that were against froze our money? How dare they? How dare they? This is ridiculous. I'm further incensed. (laughs) This is grounds for war. I am further incensed. Well, war came unexpectedly to the Americans on December 7th, 1941, when Japan launched a surprise attack against the U.S. at Pearl Harbor Naval Base in Hawaii, which was our vital outpost in the Pacific. The attack greatly damaged but did not devastate our Pacific fleet, whose aircraft carriers were at sea, Congress declared war on Japan on December 8th, and that is where the famous phrase, a date that will forever live in infamy, comes from. In FDR's notes of the manuscript for that speech, which was dictated to his personal secretary at the White House, he said originally, a day that will live in world history. And then on the first edit, he scratched out world history and he put in infamy. So again, this this guy is, a let's say, a master at oratory. Russ, I almost made you spit out your beard. Did, did you think I was going to say something else? <clears throat> yes. Okay. I've got a personal connection to Pearl Harbor. My Nana's brother, so my mom's uncle, mm-hmm. Wayne Halliday was his name. He was an enlisted sailor on a combat support ship at Pearl Harbor that day. He survived that, but he died stateside in California in April 45. Three days later, Germany and Italy declared war on the U.S., which the Congress acknowledged in a resolution accepting the state of war. Mussolini is like, yeah, us too. (laughs) December of 41, we have finally entered the war. Now it is a true world war following several years as basically a, a bystander. And the country and our national history would never be the same. I really like that Germany and Italy waited till we got like sucker pinched and they were like, yeah, well, we declare war too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to declare it as well. 1942, U.S. and the Allies are getting their asses kicked in the air and the sea on both fronts. We were undermanned, outgunned. Outmanned. Than- huh? Outnumbered. Yeah. It's Hamilton, Brett. Oh, oh, we haven't had a Hamilton it's reference be in an a while. all out. So, <laughs> every time, Brett, any, welcome. Any of us make a Hamilton reference, we have to drink. We had a handful of aircraft we, carriers that would enter the war later. For a second, talk about the Churchill FDR bromance. Go ahead. Like, it is right up there with, uh, what is it, Jefferson and was Adams. Adams and, and Jefferson. Yeah, just, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. they were just like, Bro off yeah. into the country. So yeah. That was Churchill and FDR. Yeah. Their bromance, they would like, hang out in the white house they would skip around they would well, talk about stuff would. like yeah. 
Churchill was just in awe of FDR at all times. Mm-hmm. And it was great, even down to the point where Churchill got like voted out. Because that was the thing that happened during World War II. A lot of people don't realize this. Churchill was voted out of leadership. That's amazing to me. I mean, because before him was Chamberlain. Oh, right? the one that just was like, yeah, if we let Hitler well, do his thing, maybe it'll, like, well, yeah, Chamberlain what was is the worst. Chamberlain, Neville. Was that? Was Neville that? Chamberlain. <laughs> he was like, I don't know much. <laughs> but I know Hitler is bad. <laughs> Except for in the Neville Chamberlain, he's like, I don't know much, period. I'm going to resign. <laughs> period. <laughs> yeah, because I think in 36, that's when Hitler was, oh, he was just Jesse giving Owens, everybody yeah. a smokescreen. Saying oh, yeah. like, yeah. Oh, Hoover, remember? Yeah. And Hoover, he was yeah. like, that guy's not good. Yeah. That's yeah. not a good thing. Not a good guy. Uh, we should probably do something about that. So after Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt is coming under increasing pressure by his advisors to address the nation's fears of further Japanese attack or sabotage, particularly on the West Coast, because the Japanese plan was to go from Pearl Harbor to San Francisco, where naval ports, commercial shipping, and agriculture were most vulnerable. In February, FDR signed Executive Order Number 9066 that authorized the detainment of approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans. The document ordered the force removal of resident enemy aliens, as it was put, from parts of the West vaguely identified as military areas. During the war, the Supreme Court heard two cases challenging the constitutionality of that executive order and upheld it both times. Finally, on February 19, 1976, decades after the war, President Ford signed an order prohibiting the executive branch from ever doing something like that again. And in 1998... Trying to now. Blaine, prepare yourself. In 1988, President Reagan issued a public apology on behalf of the government and authorized reparations for former Japanese-American internees or their descendants. Hmm. Hmm. Around this time, German subs are also sinking Allied shipping vessels to the bottom of the Atlantic in early 42. Can we just... One second. Go ahead. Even J. Edgar Hoover said that the internment camps were utterly unwarranted. And Eleanor was actually like aghast that her husband would decide to. Sign but it. let's take a second to think about the fact that if J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> yeah. was like, we don't need to do this. Uh, around this time, we are suffering costly defeats in the Philippines as well as in the Pacific. Plenty of battles that are going on at that point. But we have some significant gains against Japan, as we score a series of victories in the Coral Sea, Midway Island, basically effectively halting the Japanese advance. So in Europe, the Soviet Union fends off the German army on the Eastern Front with the Nazis advancing to within 30 miles of Moscow. And the extremely cold weather played an impact in this to hinder the Nazi supply machine. We're going to talk about FDR's uh, vice president. Or That's one probably of a them. good point. One to, of the to, seven to of them. And give Russ some some. Spotlight. Let's go, Russ. Our vice presidential expert. He had more than one vice president. Shocking. He was president for a while. Yeah. A while doesn't even cut it. The man was president for 200 years. (laughs) (laughs) So his uh, first vice president was John Nance Garner. Okay. Oh, Jim Nance's dad. Uh, James Garner. He was like, welcome, friends. He was Jennifer Garner's. Uh, oh, grandfather. So, like yeah. Brett and I were picking up on the golf end of that, and you guys were picking up on the Jennifer Garner. Yeah. Yeah. I said James Garner. Yeah. <laughs> John Nance Garner, nicknamed Cactus Jack. Huh. Oh, that's a cool nickname. Yeah. It's sure. because when he was in Congress, he wanted the Texas flower to be the cactus blossom. It that's wasn't. A flower. It was not. No, it didn't end up being Blue Bonnet, is the actual flower of Ice Texas. Cream? No, it's a butter. 
No, uh, Blue Bonnet is the flower of Texas. Blue Bunny ice cream. But John Garner wanted it to be the Cactus Blossom. And even though that got shot down, he still became Cactus Jack. Having having lived in Texas, West Texas, it's definitely the Cactus. It it should be. It's not. He went to Vanderbilt University. Okay. Oh, with the mascot. Commodore? Commodores. Commodores. Yeah, Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. I've got a home field. Vanderbilt shirt. Well, that's, that's where it's a Commodore with a cannon. That's where uh, Lionel Richie went to school. Was. That's why they call the Commodores. That's not. Oh, oh, man, I wish that was you true. are the worst. God, I wish that was true. Gotcha, I do though. too. Gotcha. I wish that were true. Gotcha. <laughs> Brett liked that one. Go ahead, Russ. After Vanderbilt, he became a lawyer. Okay. Go figure. And then he. Do you got... remember the story about Vanderbilt with the trains? No. He was in the train wreck, and he vowed oh, to never yeah, ride in a train okay. again. It was what's with his Pierce? name's kid. Pierce? The, Fillmore, kid, the guy Pierce? whose kid got his Pierce. head chopped off? Yeah, Pierce. that yeah. sounds right. Vanderbilt was on that wreck and was like, I'll never ride yeah. in the train again and became a train mongol. Yeah. He graduated from Vanderbilt Mogul. University Mogul. and became a lawyer. <laughs> you said he became a train mongol? Mo- <laughs> Mogul. <laughs> mongol was be like Genghis Khan. No, he punched a horse in the mouth <laughs> in Blazing Saddles. Mongo. Like, that was Mongo. Mongo. Canagram yeah. for Vanderbilt. <laughs> Yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Okay, sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, after he became a lawyer, he yeah. got TB, so tuberculosis. Thank you. Oh, Thank not you. Tom Brady. Not Tom Brady. <laughs> or Tampa Bay. And then he moved to Uvalde, Texas. Okay. U-V-A-L-D. As you do. As you do. And there he ran for school superintendent, and he was being challenged by a woman named Eddie Rainier. E-T-T-I-E. Okay. He won school superintendent. He ended like up marrying. That she's like Iggy Azalea. She's like <laughs> E T T I. Uh, he ended up marrying her. Oh, okay. Of course. He became school superintendent. Mm-hmm. And as school superintendent, he was in charge of overseeing the poor fund, is what they called it. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the poor the, fund. The, the, this has something to do with lunches. Type fund. Yeah, okay. for sure. Okay, so. In the book that I read that I get most of my information from. <laughs> just the one book. The is, one book. It is a New York Times bestseller, everybody. <laughs> I love that you like prefaced it like, look, I, I, have to. I swear to God, I did this. I have to. Okay. Go ahead. Because he heard when he was running the poor fund, uh, he heard that some Mexicans had used the dole to buy <laughs> tequila and whiskey. That's what he heard. It always. Yeah, right. They always do it. Um, Some Mexicans have done this. So in the book that I read, they said because of that, he gave placebos to the Mexicans who were accused of doing so. Okay. All right. No other explanation than that. But what happened was his political foe at the time said that these placebos had killed a welfare recipient. All right. I went to the edges of the Internet to figure out... (laughs) What this meant. Okay. I have no idea. I don't know why. So I, let me just back Russ up here for a second. Like, Please. When Russ wants to find something out, he <laughs> he will go yeah. to the edge. Like he, okay. He hunts it down. And I couldn't find anything. I don't know why they would be just taking pills. Yeah. Anyway. So what his political foe had done is said that one of these placebos had killed one of the welfare recipients. And because of that... He lost the election for judge. But soon after he lost that election, 
the guy that he supposedly killed was back out on the street again. Hmm. So it was hmm. his political foes had been like, you, come here. <laughs> Get over here. Yeah. And they just kept him in hiding until he lost the election. So he didn't end up being. Wow. I don't. And this was FDR's vice president. This was his vice which president. One? Which one? One, two, three, four, five. This is the first one. First one. John Nance Garner. Okay. Right. And then John Garner. Eventually he became the. Speaker of the House. His lifelong ambition was to be Speaker of the House. Okay. He did not want to be Vice President. He was basically forced to become Vice President hmm. in order for FDR to make it in. He needed some of his votes. He said, when he visited the White House, he said, I never noticed until today how much the shiny latch on the executive office doors looks like the handle on a casket. Ooh. Like every president dies. But does every president truly live? <laughs> nice. I mean, I'm going to take credit. Up. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm 100% taking credit for all of that joke. <laughs> and since he was a former Speaker of the House, he was very much involved with all the, the Congress people within it. He was a snitch. Whenever FDR was having private meetings, he'd basically take that information and relay it to the Congress oh, he people. He was sources. He okay. was. He was sources. He was say. sources for sure. And it got to a point yeah. where everybody knew that. Yeah. So when there was any kind of meetings with FDR and he was in the room, yeah. they would wait till or after oh. and have one-on-ones with FDR so they know he wasn't listening. And they called him staying for the prayer meeting hmm. afterwards. Mm. Yeah. Is it a prayer meeting? Yeah. And then, you know, FDR had a, a third term thing where he was real wishy-washy on it. So Garner... At some point, had to throw his hat in the ring as a presidential candidate. Okay. And then thinking FDR wasn't going to hop back in, he did. Yeah. He beat him out. Wow. Russ, did he uh, did he have any other vice presidents? Yes, he had a second one. Okay, tell us. His name was Henry Wallace. Freedom! <laughs> William Wallace. He was a, a farmer from Iowa. Okay. And he was kind of like a... Um, Could shoot the three. Yeah. I was going to say it's very Herbert Hoover of him, which was ironic seeing how much FDR and Hoover hated each other. And Hoover was from Iowa. Yeah. His his dad was the... But this dude could shoot the three. Yeah, he could. <laughs> his dad was the Secretary of Agriculture under Harding and Coolidge. Okay. And... Regulator. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... <laughs> That's called vocal fry. Oh, like the um, Kardashians. Vocal they have fry. That. It's when your vocal cords are rubbing against you. Never yeah. Oh, like mine cool are constantly thing. rubbing. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you're going to get a note or a polyp. Be careful. Like Frank Black. Or a vocal cord baby. They're rubbing. <laughs> Throw up the vocal Friction. cord baby. <laughs> That's my vocal cord baby. <laughs> That's super gross. CPS is coming for it. I love that movie. CPS came for a baby. Her. Have you never seen that? Have you seen the Wild no. and Wonderful Whites? Wild, Wild and Wonderful Whites. Oh, She's in the oh. Taco Bell oh. drive-thru. She goes, CPS took her baby. <laughs> Hers. Hers. In the Taco Bell drive-thru while yelling at someone in the lobby of Taco Bell. <laughs> Johnny Knoxville directed that, right? Uh, he was a producer. He was oh. part of it. I don't know. Hey, Russ, did uh, FDR have a second vice president? <laughs> oh, I'm doing. Know. He was like Silicon Valley for Iowa, kind of. So he... Silicon Prairie. Yeah. Kind well of Silicon Prairie. Yeah. He he actually started his own special hybrid corn company. Of course And he, he became, yeah, called Pioneer. Uh-huh. It was oh, the... What? What? Hold did on. He, did he spell ear, E-A-R? No, 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 no. 
Pioneer. It's huge. Like, yeah, it's that's a yeah. giant, like, brand name in oh. corn. Oh, it is. Man. So, Did Pioneer. I just nerd out? Is this not a thing that's people okay. know? It is. <laughs> so, Pioneer Hybrid, he started it. Henry wow. Wallace, he developed this before corn. He was v- before he before was, he was okay. VP. Like you've heard of Bex, as right? Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, this is the competitor of Bex. Okay, yeah, Thank you. Thank it's, you. it's enormous, and he became a multi-millionaire from this hybrid corn empire that does exist till today. Wow. Yeah, it, Hank Wallace, a corn man. Yeah, vice president, and then he thought he was going to be the vice president with FDR for the third term. He was told. He was going to be the vice presidential candidate by FDR. And then FDR told like three other people mm-hmm. they're going to be vice that presidential was, candidates. was the thing FDR mm-hmm. did. He he did. And at the end, he just said, well, we'll let the convention decide. Mm. And sure enough, the convention went in another direction. What he really did was he knew he was about to die. And he was like, who do we want to be the president next? And it wasn't the pioneer farmer guy. It, it was Truman. It was Harry Truman. Russ, thank you for that. Thanks, Russ. Hey, on that note, we're going to take another quick break, and you'll hear from another one of our sponsors that are helping to make this episode possible. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, guys, it's Ryan. If you need custom-made T-shirts for your team or organization, look no further than our good friends here in Indy, The Art Press. The Art Press is a local, eco-friendly small business that's been around for years here in Indy, designing and printing all the super comfortable shirts you may have seen through their parent company's store, Vardigan. We've worked with them on our awesome new shirts that feature Thomas Jefferson riding a fire-breathing mastodon, and our experience couldn't have gone better. If you need help creating a design or you have your artwork ready to print, Derek and the team at The Art Press can help you get your orders set up online quickly and easily. Plus, they ship everywhere and offer excellent customer service. Get a quote on your order of shirts today at theartpress.com. That's theartpress.com. Welcome back. So it's 1943, and the tide begins to turn in favor of the Allies in this year in the Pacific and in Europe. In the Pacific, the U.S. began to tighten the noose around Japanese through an island-hopping campaign and won major victories at Guadalcanal and Tarawa. Have you guys ever heard of Tarawa, by the way? Yeah. Well, the fighting was exceptionally brutal, and casualties were high on both sides at Tarawa. So it's a 300-acre spit of land, and the Americans took 3,000 casualties. The war in the Pacific. 3,000? 3,000 casualties for a 300-acre piece of land in the Pacific. In Europe, the Brits and Americans completed the North Africa campaign. You might have mm-hmm. heard of Rommel. So Churchill... North Africa is yeah. really where 1st Armored Division really came to be, the tank battle. and Churchill had convinced FDR at a conference in Casablanca earlier in the year that the Allies... I just really liked that we were like, you about Rommel with the Jewish person at the table. Right here. His wife was Jewish. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, was, he was a sympathizer. Churchill had earlier in the year convinced FDR that the Allies should next invade Italy. Stalin disagreed. He wanted a major assault on France, but the invasion of Italy nonetheless began despite Stalin's protests in the summer of 1943, and it lasted for two years. Fun story. FDR called Stalin Uncle Joe, and the entire time FDR... Yeah. It's a great yeah. nickname for him. It's like a code name? No, he just thought it was fun. He was a mascot to FDR. It's his version of Pooty Poot. All the while, <laughs> while FDR and Churchill were doing the, the rounds, yeah. Stalin was constantly surveilling them, had everything bugged, and everything they did was recorded. FDR and Churchill just thought Stalin was great. Yeah. Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe. Yeah. Little did they know, Uncle Joe was taking some notes. Yeah. Uh, There's the, what, what's the theory with the Russian? It's hairy or bald, right? 
There's there's some kind of sequence. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> like, you know it's true. Of um, Russian presidents? I don't the think SARS, you can call them that. Yeah, the leaders yeah. of the leaders Russia. Of Russia leaders. You're either... I think it goes from bald hairy to hairy to, yeah. to bald to hairy to bald to hairy. Going all the way back to before Stalin, right? Yeah. It was like Tsar Nicholas or something. Yeah. Wow. They're bald and then super hairy and then bald wow. and then super hairy. Bald like Russ and then the next person has tons of hair and like eyebrows out the world. Yeah. If you'll allow another personal connection during this era, September 11th, 1943, my dad's dad, my paternal grandfather, Ozzy Alwart was his nickname, Ozzy. He was on board the light cruiser, the USS Savannah, off the coast of Salerno, Italy, during this Italian invasion. Savannah. And, uh, Salerno, unana. His ship was hit by a German radio-controlled bomb that went down one of the turrets, exploded, and 197 of his shipmates were killed. In the USS Savannah. So it there just a, so happened to go into the ship? There was a German radio-controlled bomb okay. that hit directly one of the, I think it was the forward turret on this light cruiser. It went all the way down the shaft of the turret. That's that going to give it a UTI. They were actually able, down to, the shaft. They were able to save the ship, and it took eight months to repair, and then that ship was then part of, flash-forwarding a little bit, the group of ships that escorted FDR to the Yalta conference uh, in Crimea in, I think, 45. 1944 comes along. General Dwight D. Eisenhower is commanding the Allied forces. They land in northwestern France on June 6, 1944. Operation Overlord, you might have heard of D-Day, was a grand success at the cost of 10,000 Allied men. And uh, Paris was then liberated from Nazi rule by the end of the summer. We then sweep across France. The war in Europe appeared to be heading towards its final chapter as the Soviets made quick progress on the Eastern Front and the Americans and British closed in on Germany. I really like that when you said the Soviets, you pointed I at pointed Russ. To Russ. No, did you? Yeah, I, I, just, I just pointed to <laughs> We also made similar gains, not just us, but the Allies in 1944 in the Pacific, defeating the Japanese in the Philippines, New Guinea, and Guam, compelling the Japanese to retreat back to their home island. Can Would- I tell a personal story here? Please. As a lot of you might know, I was raised by great-grandparents. Well, not raised, but like lived with my great-grandparents till I was 10. When my great-grandfather Fox died, who was a huge influence on my life, Francis Eugene Fox. My uncle, Mike, pulled me aside at my grandpa's funeral and said, hey, I grabbed some stuff for you. Like, I knew this was going to be important to you, and I knew that, like, it was going to get thrown into the fight for the family, so I just kind of pulled it aside. Take it now. Don't tell anybody you have it. We're now far enough away. Doesn't really matter. And none of them listen to this because they, frankly, wouldn't understand how to download a podcast. Um. (laughs) It was my grandfather's dog tags Mm. from World War II. His flag from that day, he was like, I'm giving you this flag. When I got the bag with the flag and the dog tags, there was some paperwork in there. Inside that paperwork was his discharge paperwork from World War II. My great-grandfather always told me I spent World War II playing softball. I didn't see any war. I knew he was an artilleryman. I knew he said I shot some stuff. I didn't know where it went. I didn't need to know where it went. Was he, he was in, in New, He was in New Guinea. Okay. The rate, the travel pay from Pawpaw, New Guinea hmm. to Tipton, Indiana was three dollars and twenty seven cents. What? <laughs> I've got it's in the other room. I've got it. Wow. <laughs> that was Which his is travel maybe pay. Like twenty bucks now, <laughs> yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah. Wow. but he did get a lifetime license for hunting and fishing in Tipton County. However. 
the dude that I knew paid for his license every single year, even mm. though he got one in what, 1947? Yeah. For life. And Still I have, that's one of the coolest things I think that I have is his lifetime hunting and fishing license. It's pretty great. The cool thing is like, it was $3.27, his travel pay from Papua New Guinea to Tipton, Indiana. That's insane. Multiple, multiple thousands of miles. I would highly encourage you to digitize that if you haven't already and oh, find it somewhere. Oh, make an NFT. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Put it somewhere very safe. Russ, do you have a World War II family connection at all? My grandfather fought in World War II. Dad's dad or mom's dad? Mom's dad. Okay. Do you know much about his service? Uh, he was D-Day plus two. He was also a interrogator. So after they would liberate concentration camps, mm-hmm. they would take the Nazi soldiers and he would be one of the first interrogators to go in and do interrogator stuff and get information from the Nazi soldiers. Wow. Yeah. This is your... My grandfather. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. This man was a Russian Jew interrogating Nazi cons- yes. ext- well, extermination just, camp soldiers. He didn't like to talk about it. Russ, thanks for sharing that, man. Hey, no problem. So with our advance in the Pacific, we can now launch bombers from these islands that we've been gaining control of to attach Japan directly. One thing we didn't talk about, but I will briefly talk about it because it is really important, was two years prior to this. So this was back in, I think, 42, April 18th, 42. Uh, I remember that because it was my grandfather's birthday. Doolittle's Raiders. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Okay. So this is a basically a one-way suicide mission. There's 16 Army B-25s that take off from the USS Hornet, a carrier in the Pacific, to go bomb Japan. First of all, 16 took off and 16 went down. And so what we're seeing now, though, is two years after that very pivotal decision to strike directly at the heart of Japan via the air, we can now do it effectively because we have gained so much ground, we and the Allies, not just the U.S., but we have gained so much ground where we're encroaching closer and closer and closer upon the Japanese homeland. So there's about to be a full-scale invasion of Japan in '45 that American war planners feared would be as bloody as the Pacific campaign, not just on the military front, but on the civilian front as well. And so January 45, the big three, Stalin, Churchill, and FDR continued at Yalta in the Crimea. By this time, FDR is weak. He is sick. He is run down. He has horrible medical conditions. And this Yalta meeting is extremely tense. Victory in Europe was almost assured, but the Allies had not yet agreed on basically what's going to happen to Europe in the future after this giant war. One month after Yalta, Allied troops crossed the Rhine River into Germany. Nazi soldiers surrendered to them in the tens of thousands as Hitler's regime crumbled. As they advanced, Allied troops uncovered the atrocious and horrific realities of Hitler's horrible race policy, namely the concentration and extermination camps that Russ, you had mentioned, um, set up primarily in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, charged with exterminating entire groups of people, Jews as the primary target. Can't gloss over that. We can't. I mean, this this is horrific. And I mean, Hitler's entire purpose of his campaign explicitly was the extermination of the Jewish entire population. And I don't even understand why. It wasn't just a conquest of land. I mean, like, was there something that happened early on that he was just like that guy did this thing? I'm sure. I I don't know. I didn't make it all the way through Mein Kampf. (laughs) The Allies are now racing towards Berlin. And Hitler was surrounded by a small group of loyal followers, and he implored his armed forces that were now numbering 
increasing numbers of teenage young men. He implored them to continue the fight, and he committed suicide in his bunker in Berlin on April 30th, 1945. On the other side of the globe, U.S. and Allied forces were tightening the ring around Japan. FDR would not live to celebrate victory over either adversary, however. So he's traveled 28,000 miles total to Yalta and back. Yeah, 28,000 miles to the Crimea and back. And he arrives back in Warm Springs, Georgia on March 30th, 45. He had hoped that a few weeks of rest there at the Little White House, as he called it, would do the trick between traveling west to San Francisco for the upcoming United Nations conference that was going to be held on April 25th. So two weeks before the conference, he's in Georgia on April 12th, sitting for a portrait that was being made of him. His mistress, Lucy Mercer, now Lucy Rutherford, was nearby. His head drooped and he whispered, I have a terrific pain in the back of my head. That was my best FDR. Concert. That was your FDR? It was kind of clipped. Uh, oh, Have man. you listened to audio clips of it? He whispered no. it. so I, I just, up to this point, all I've ever really heard you do is go, this guy, oh, yeah. that guy. Yeah. And so I was really looking forward to seeing you do like a modern day person without like relying on yeah, the. He had what's called a transatlantic accent. This is legit. Hmm. It's not a geographic thing. It was just how people back in that day that were of a certain status typically talked. It's just uh-huh. this weird. No, it makes sense. Example, no, I understand what you're saying. Transatlantic accent. It was very clipped. And it was very much like this. And it was oh, da, 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 yeah. da, ha. Yeah. And it kind of had a sing- Today on the news. And it had a weird sing song to it. So I don't know how we would have sounded specifically. It was a whisper. I think you got it. I have Actually, a we brain. do know exactly how it would have sounded because it head. was recorded. Not as Today, last words. Oh, I December seventh, nineteen forty one. A day, a day in it would live in infamy. He said, "I have a terrific pain in the back of my head." I have a terrific pain in the, in the back, back of my head. Of my head. It sounds very Obama. It, it, I was going to say the same. <laughs> there is at least. Place. Your your impressions of the transatlantic accent sound yeah. like Barack Yeah, Obama. maybe it's just... If you love accents... Maybe there's... it's just our impression of the transatlantic accent. Oh. Uh, accent of a different syllable there. Uh, <laughs> if you love accents, check out this guy named Eric Singer. Eric with a K, I believe, at the end. Take me to church. On... Is that not the same guy? No, that's, no? Uh, okay. that's Hosier. <laughs> <laughs> that is Hozier. Eric is Singer Eric is a dialect coach. He works with actors, and he's got some stuff on YouTube, and he breaks down accents in movies, Man, and he teaches imagine, you all about accents. He's brilliant. having ego large enough to be like, I work with actors. No, dude. It's it's unreal how many <laughs> Am I dialects. Wrong? Am I wrong about that? He how did many, Hans Gruber, I assume. He's, he, I don't know. He's a linguist. Oh, that's a bingo. <laughs> Is Hans Gruber, uh, Alan, Alan Rickman, yeah. he oh, yeah. he tricks uh, Bruce Willis into thinking that he's like a California. California, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Eric Singer, go check it out. So anyway, the president, 63 years old, passes away April 12th, 1945, to a cerebral hemorrhage. Vice President Harry Truman took the oath of office that same day. The president's death stunned the world for a number of different reasons, mostly because no one knew who Harry Truman was. This, Missouri. This guy's a former hat salesman from Missouri. Uh, and you we have... We have to talk about him. You're in the shadow of FDR. It's actually, like, legally obligated. Yeah. Well, this doing giant a whole giant book. Yeah, that's what I meant by we have to talk about it. Yeah. There's a 995-page book about yeah. him. 
Thanks, David McCullough. Churchill <sighs> described learning of FDR's death as comparable to having been struck a physical blow. Stalin was distressed as well to learn about his passing, and hundreds of thousands of Americans, many with tears in their eyes, lined the train route carrying his body from Georgia to D.C. and then on to Hyde Park in New York. Roosevelt was buried there in his family estate at Hyde Park, New York, on April 15, 1945. The end of the war in Europe followed less than a month later after FDR's death. Only a handful of people knew about the atomic bomb that would end the war under Truman's watch, including Truman, who had to be briefed on its existence. FDR's widow, Eleanor, continued to be a forceful presence in global politics after her husband's death. She championed civil rights until her death in 1962 at the age of 72. President John Kennedy ordered all United States flags lowered to half-staff throughout the world in tribute to FDR's widow. Let's dive in, as we do in every episode, about the legacy of this president. So Gene Edward Smith, who wrote the book that we read, wrote, quote, FDR lifted himself from a wheelchair to lift the nation from its knees, which I thought was an interesting quote. Mm -hmm. According to C-SPAN's Presidential Historians Survey, which is another three, we, FDR currently sits, according to that survey, at number three. Okay. Uh, below uh, Washington and above his distant cousin, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, so two is Lincoln, Washington, Lincoln, FDR. That is correct. Yes. By the way, Brett is still here. Brett is still he here. He has sat through the entire thing. Yeah. He hasn't even nodded off once. <laughs> he's got a beautiful beard too. And he's, and he's rocking a Jefferson on a Mastodon t-shirt, which you can get at ryansongs.com. FDR was undoubtedly among the greatest American statesmen of the 20th century. Whether or not we agree with his political views and policies, he brought America through a world depression in a season of peace, and then he became an extraordinarily effective wartime president in the face of evil and tyranny of Nazism and Japanese incursions throughout the Pacific. We always ask this question, mm -hmm. you know, FDR is the reason the United States of America dot 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 got into World War II. Okay. Blaine? Has Social Security. Hmm. Let's dive into little known facts, shall we? Okay. Let's do it. This is actually about Eleanor. So her sixth great-grandfather, Robert Livingston, administered the oath of office to George Washington in 1789. That's wow. fascinating. Isn't that yeah, cool? that's amazing. Sixth great-grandfather. Not shocking in the family they grew up in. Yeah, right. Yeah. Especially in New York. Yeah. Crazy, right? They didn't ever have anything to worry about. Yeah. FDR flew to Chicago in 32 to accept the Democratic nomination for president and became the first sitting president to journey via plane and the first president to leave the country in wartime, which he did for a conference in Morocco with Churchill. He was almost assassinated, which I had no clue about. No. Um, yeah. And the dude assassinated the Chicago mayor yeah. instead. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. He was trying thickens. to kill. So it's February 1933, and this guy named Giuseppe Zangara. Giuseppe. 17 days prior to FDR's inauguration, there's a speech being made in Miami that FDR is giving, and this guy, Giuseppe Zangara, tries to shoot FDR, misses, and instead injures five bystanders and kills the mayor of Chicago, Anton Cermak. Roosevelt cradled Cermak in his arms as the car rushed to the hospital after arriving there. Well, allegedly, this actually ended up on Cermak's tombstone. Allegedly, he uttered to FDR the line, I'm glad it was me, not you. Zangara was later executed on March 20th of 33 in the electric chair at the Florida State Prison, and the name of that electric chair was Old Sparky. <laughs> on March 6th, 1933, this is another little-known fact about Eleanor, she became the first First Lady to hold a press conference where only female reporters were admitted. That's cool. That's yeah. dope. Yeah. March 6th, 1933. 
Do you think all newspapers had a female reporter to lend to no, that press there conference? Were three. I don't know. That's a good there question. Were three. Yeah. There were three, and there were the uh, Outsiders, which is a good book, by the way, by S. E. Hinton. Yeah. Ralph uh, Macchio. Yeah. <laughs> Ralph Macchio. <laughs> FDR used the Roosevelt Family Bible for all four of his inaugurations. It's the oldest inaugural Bible, printed in 1686, and the only one written in a modern foreign language. Dutch. He appointed Frances Perkins, the first woman to serve in the U.S. cabinet as Secretary of Labor mm-hmm. on March 4th, 1933. Frances Perkins, you could say, was literally in labor for 12 years. Oh, oh that's boy. A good one. All right. I wrote that one myself. <laughs> 14-year-old Fidel Castro wrote FDR a letter at one point asking him for, quote, a he tent- was like, I love your social programs. What if I take them to extreme? And FDR was like, do it. There you go. Asking for, quote, a $10 bill green American because I would like to have one of them. And in FDR is like, here you go. Share it with everybody equally. He also offered in a postscript. He was like, P.S. If you do, I will show you the biggest mines of iron in, in Cuba. <laughs> Kind of crazy. It was in 1940. In 1942, he converted an old cloakroom in the White House into the White House Family Theater. Mm -hmm. So any president who's watched a movie in the White House has FDR to think. 17 days after his death, the carrier USS Franklin D. Roosevelt was launched and served from 45 to 1977. Partly because of his long stint as president, Congress created the 22nd Amendment, which limited future presidents to a maximum of two terms, which was ratified (laughs) in 1951. We did that because of him. Weird. Yeah. Partly oh. because of him. I don't know what the other reasons was. But yeah, like, Listen, yeah, we should probably, yeah. probably. His leadership in the March of Dimes, which was an organization that I think tried to help infantile polio patients. Polio, yeah. So the if you, we mention it very early on in the episode, he bought that like Springs. Yeah, warm, yeah the that, Warm Springs. That was the beginning of March of Dimes. Yes. So he bought that Springs. It kind of evolved from there and he earned more money from it. Yeah. Or, more notoriety yeah. for the cause. And that became March. So what we we know of March of Dimes uh-huh. is like right after he got polio from Russ's Boy Scouts. Yeah. So it's actually part of his leadership in that is the reason he's commemorated on the American dime. I didn't know this, but oh. before FDR was on the dime, Lady Liberty was on the dime before him. Ten years to the day of his death on April 12th, 1955, representatives of the March of Dimes announced Dr. Jonas Salk's effective and safe vaccine to prevent polio. So a decade after FDR dies, the vaccine is announced to the day by... 10 uh, years? 10 years to the day. Do you think they waited 10 years on purpose? Because a dime is 10 cents. I don't know. Maybe it just took them that long. Yeah, Russ, they waited 10 years just to... They let all those people die. Maybe they had it like nine, nine and a half years and they were like, just six more months. There are neurologists that I did in some other research that there's a theory that he didn't actually have polio. He was misdiagnosed with another syndrome that has a lot of similarities to it called like Gillian-Barre syndrome. Or Gillian-Barre. Is, is that what it is? Yeah. 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 Yes. Exactly what you're Gillian-Barre. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a rapid onset muscle weakness caused by the immune system damaging the nervous system. Russ, you have your hand up. How do you spell bar? B-A-R-R-E. I'm trying to find out now if the bar that is named in the Gillian-Barr syndrome is related to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, where the Bethlehem Steel Company was, which is where... Johnny Appleseed came from! (laughs) Yeah. 
Yogi Bear. We, we did a bonus episode on Johnny Appleseed. Side note, if you want those bonus episodes, just become a patron. Uh, tier 2 at patreon.com slash presequential. You'll help us to make all kinds of future episodes. On a soggy country road behind enemy lines near Pfeffenhassen, Germany, a band of an American prisoners of war was being marched to a new enclosure, presumably to prevent their liberation by advancing Allied forces. From the German guards, they learned that President Roosevelt was dead. At noon, the ranking American officer climbed a nearby hill, accompanied by a bugler. He turned and addressed his fellow prisoners. I have been told that President Roosevelt died yesterday, April the 12th. The sergeant will now play taps. Then we will have a moment of silence. It was the saddest taps I had ever heard, remembered Bill Levingstone, who had been captured by the Germans after bailing out of his damaged B-17 in 1944. Tears ran down my face, as they did on the faces of the rest of the group. When the sergeant finished playing, we all stood silently, with our heads bowed. Then we marched on. <laughs> <laughs>